Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. There are moments in life that are so special that you have to capture them and save them forever. They are one of those once-in-a-lifetime events, like your baby's first steps, the first time you bring your family pet home, or your daughter's first dance performance. With iPhone 15 Pro, more storage means you don't have to delete anything that can become a lasting memory one day. And it's important to be able to share these moments with family members who weren't there to see them in person. Store more, share more. Connect with iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T. Get iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T and get an iPad and Apple Watch for 99 cents per month each. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Limited time offer. Requires 0% APR 36-month agreement on each. Well-qualified customers. Other terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash iPhone for details. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Three brothers named Franklin, Emmett, and Bill are together in prison for a failed case of rail robbery in Oklahoma. Their plan had been to make off with all the packages from a U.S. post office mail car, which they reasoned would have some expensive merchandise on the way to the West. Instead, they got tracked down by U.S. Marshals and sentenced to 30 years in a federal penitentiary. On the one-year anniversary of their incarceration, the prison gets a new warden. This warden, everybody says, is a soft-hearted, academic, social scientist type. And instead of harsh punishments, he brings in new accommodations for the prisoners. Uh, One is a newly stocked library and a collection of board games. How sweet. One day, Bill, the youngest of the brothers, brings his brothers a spirit board from the board game card. He suggests they use it to ask how they can escape the prison, laughing. The older brother, Franklin, balks at this otherworldly nonsense, but Bill convinces them to play, and so the three brothers put their hands on the plancha of the spirit board. After several minutes of asking questions and getting no answers, the plancha begins to move, ever so slowly at first, but then gaining speed, and it spells, I want to talk to Bill. So, Franklin laughs, but Bill is dead serious. He takes the board away in the corner by himself and spends the rest of the day with it. The next morning out in the yard, Bill is shot by guards while trying to climb over the fence. Stupid, Franklin says. Why would Bill have thought he could make it? A month goes by. Emmett, the middle brother, brings the spirit board back, and he suggests they use it to see if they can contact Bill to ask him why he did such a stupid thing. They do. Emmett speaks to the air. Franklin sits quietly. After several minutes of nothing, the plancha finally starts to move. It spells, I want to talk to Emmett. Emmett takes the board by himself to the corner and spends the rest of the day playing with it in silence. The next morning, Emmett has wall-cleaning duty on the guard towers, and in the middle of this, he tries to jump from the tower over the fence and breaks his neck. It was so high, why would he have thought he could survive? Immediately afterward, Franklin goes to the prison library and retrieves the spirit board for himself. He takes it to a quiet corner. He says, what have you been telling my brothers? 
the plancha under his fingers begins to move. And unfortunately, that's all there is of the story. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. What happens next? <laughs> How can we leave it there? The, the, just the ragged ends of the story. We're bleeding all over the place. What are we supposed to do? It, uh, it leaves us hungry for more, Joe. Uh, so I, I wrote that story, so that may have been a horrible story. But <laughs> uh, I, I was trying to inflict the pain mm-hmm. that people feel when there is a story that's set up that is not completed. Mm-hmm. I know we all have this experience. You, you ever have one of those great uh, TV shows that gets one season going, everybody likes it, and then it gets canceled, and you never know what what was going to happen? Yeah, um, I, I I seem to recall having the same experience with um, Stephen King's Golden Years back in the day. I, remember uh, I don't know what that is. It was uh, like a, a TV show that he did about this guy that was uh, getting older or getting younger. It's been a long time. But they had the David Bowie song as the theme song, and uh, it just it did not do well, and it did not get picked up. And I have no idea what happened, um, and I never will. Wow. Yeah. It's a horrible feeling. Yeah. I mean, even if the material's not that good, you, it sticks with you. You, you want to follow it through. You want to have the complete experience of that story. Right. So this episode we're going to do today is about the concept of incompleteness and unfinished ideas in art, in science, and in psychology in general. Uh, but this was actually inspired by a couple of events that you attended when you were recently in New York City. I think we were actually in New York City around the same time. It was the same, the same week, yeah, separately. And uh, you, I think you left right before I arrived. Uh-huh. And we didn't actually realize that this was happening. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, I was uh, I was in uh, New York for the World Science Festival, uh, which I try to attend uh, at least uh, every couple of years, mm-hmm. and uh, I uh, I attended a fabulous discussion titled "To Unweave a Rainbow: Science and the Essence of Being Human." And uh, I, by the time this publishes, I believe the video is actually available for everyone else. I'll make sure that we include a link to it on the uh, landing page for this episode. Uh, and I also attended a wonderful exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art titled "The Un." Finished thoughts left visible. This is crazy because when I was in New York, I I went to the Met, but mm-hmm. I did not see this exhibit, and that drives me crazy. Not only because I was unable to finish seeing everything at the oh, museum, yeah. and thus my museum experience is left incomplete, an mm-hmm. unfinished task, but also because this exhibit sounds really cool. Oh yes, indeed. It's um it, it features a features a vast gallery of incomplete works. Um, by a number of just really famous artists. And each uh, work exposes something of the artist's process, uh, the, the realities of the artistic process, and something of the, the, the timescape in which each one was produced. So, um, it, yeah, it's a fascinating um, exhibit. It's as, as of this publication date, it's still ongoing through most of this year. So if you're in New York or you're making it up that way, go check it out. But also the, uh, the online presence for the exhibit is, is pretty strong as well. Any piece that we mention here, and all the ones that we we do not mention, they are all viewable uh, at the Mets website. Cool. Uh, so I guess this episode is probably going to be a little bit looser than many of them. Uh, yeah, that's the way I'm kind of envisioning it, uh, that it's going to be more sort of back and forth and just talking about ideas here. Because both experiences, both the World Science Festival panel uh, and the exhibit at the Met, uh, really got me thinking about the nature of incompleteness and finished, unfinished works in the human experience. So, yeah, I thought we'd dive uh, dive into the topic a bit here um, and just see where it takes us. Uh, we'll, we will get to some more, uh, you know, sort of scientific uh, material towards the end in mm-hmm. case in case everything feels a little too loosey-goosey to you. All right, so here we are. Let's talk a little bit about uh, human obsessions with completeness and the sort of unfinished nature of our lives. It's kind of a weird paradox, isn't it? Yeah, why is it that it drove me crazy when I was in New York at the same time? I was going to museums. Mm-hmm. I went to the Brooklyn Museum, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and the uh, the American Natural History Museum. Uh, all fantastic. At the Met and the Natural History Museum, I was not able to see everything in the museum in a day. Yeah, they're gigantic and, museums. And that drove me crazy. Mm-hmm. I, I, I felt like I was going insane because I was like, ah, I've spent a whole day here. I haven't even gotten through half of it. Uh, but if I had gone to a museum that was composed entirely of only the things I was able to see at those museums, that would have been 
a, a wonderful experience. Yeah. <laughs> it was just the knowledge that I hadn't finished it. I, I mean, I even find that towards the end, even the stuff that I have time to, to look at and try to absorb, by the end of my, my visit, I ha- I'm feeling enough of a cognitive drain that I know that I'm not properly uh, assimilating all the information. So really, I, I need to always make it a point to just hit the stuff that's most interesting to me first and pray that I don't run across something even more interesting later in the visit, mm-hmm. especially on the way out when you have no time to see it at all. Yeah. So part of this is, of course, just, uh, just, you know, it, as far as the broader human experience goes, is just a, a quest for like a, an understanding of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you want to know where you are. You want to know what's around the corner. And in a larger sense, you want a, a concise cosmology. We want to know where we came from, where we're going. We want to know how the world works and how we can exploit that information to better carry out uh, all those uh, biological objectives that we have mandated in our genes. But, of course, we can't know all that. Right. We're never going to know everything. Yeah. I we mean, can fool ourselves into thinking we know all the necessary information at any given time, so such as what are the main exhibits we want to see at the Met, but then we turn a corner on our way out and we realize there was something we wanted to see uh, and we just didn't know it was there. Uh, but that same kind of obsession with having a complete picture or complete view that comes in in art, too. What's that old expression? Who is it who said that, uh, you know, uh, poems or novels, maybe whatever it is, they're, they're never really finished, they're only abandoned? Yeah, yeah, that's... And, and that's, I think that's an accurate uh, statement to bring up. Yeah, you, even, even a work like that, which is a contained work, a self-contained uh, universe in many senses with a definite beginning, middle, and end, uh, even those are arguably all incomplete. Um, and of course, all, any of this is completely out of step with our experience of reality. Our lives are in a constant state of incompleteness. You know, we're all half-finished stories. Our relationships, our values, our beliefs, they're constantly in flux, and we have this, this maddening or, you know, empowering, depending on how you look at it, ability to believe in multiple things that totally contradict each other. So, as much as we crave a complete narrative, as much as we crave a complete cosmology, our own inner experience is just a jumble that at best we're able to uh, to, to sort of deceive ourselves into thinking of as part of a, a, a more complete work. Okay, so how does this tie, I can see how it ties into the uh, the Met exhibit with unfinished works of art, but how does this tie into the discussion you saw at the World Science Festival? Okay, so the, the, the talk in question was uh, to unweave a rainbow. Science and the Essence of Being Human, and it featured a three-way discussion between physicist Brian Green, who's also one of the founders of uh, World Science Festival, neuroscientist Miguel Nicolaelis, and writer Leon Weaseltier. Weaseltier. So their their conversation wove in and out of this very notion, uh, basically with a focus on on science mm-hmm. and non-scientific understanding, sort of science and religion, science and philosophy, mm-hmm. talking about each one's ability to try and create a complete picture or even just to go after a complete picture of what the universe is, what the human experience is. Weaseltier, in particular, took up the uh, the, the more the pro-religion, pro-philosophy uh, argument mm-hmm. here, uh, and he just mentioned fuzzy methods. Yeah, yeah, and he brought it up, you know, basically, and saying that you know this is this is the best way to trump. What is the best way to trump uncertainty in our lives? Mm-hmm. You know, we have science and we have religion. Uh, we need to feel that our lives are an outcome of something. So we want to turn to something that has a complete answer. Uh-huh. But of course, there's we run into obvious problems there. Right. Uh, First, let's take science, right? Yeah. Um, science, as we understand it on the show, and I think as most listeners understand it, is not a complete understanding of yeah. the universe. I think one of the quickest ways you can tell someone is not scientifically literate is when they say something like, oh, scientists think that, that science gives you all the answers. Mm-hmm. Uh, that That is not what science is about. It is, in fact, always uncertainty. Uh, and anybody who thinks like that probably doesn't interact with science very much. Right. Uh, and and uh, Weaseltier put a, a, a nice little uh, summary over this discu- by discussing it in terms of science and vulgar science, saying mm-hmm. that you know real science is questing after the answers and is inherently incomplete, whereas vulgar science is more of this sort of idea of science, this bumper sticker, um, I love science level of scientific understanding where 
it's really more like a re- religious understanding of science. Right. It's As, just dogmas. Science yeah. says we know X rather yeah. than uh, thinking about the method itself. Right. But then in terms of religion, he, he makes a distinction between religion and vulgar religion. The idea here being that just as vulgar science believes that science has all the answers and shouldn't be questioned and is this, you know, bumper sticker understanding of it, mm-hmm. you also have this version of religion that thinks, oh, well, it's, it's written on a tablet somewhere. It's all taken care of. It's all explained. Whereas, you know, at, 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 at higher levels of, of most faiths, you're going to encounter a lot more consideration. There's, a, I mean, the, when you get into theological discussions of how this model of faith interacts with the human experience and with our daily lives, it's going to be a little more nuanced and particularly and, and possibly changing. This is weasel, weasel tears. Yes, idea. this is weasel tears. Idea. Yeah. So that uh, religion also has a sort of quest for meaning version that, that leaves a sort of radical openness in the same way science does. Yeah. Radical openness. I think that's a that's that's a, a good way to put it. Yeah. Uh, so, so I really liked his argument that you can find that radical openness on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um now, uh, as far as art goes, there, there was actually some direct uh, references to art in this talk. Um, uh, Miguel uh, Nicolelis, who, uh, who is a very uh, interesting neuroscientist, by the way, involved in a number of different uh, um, uh, projects that involve uh, using an exoskeleton device yeah. to assist uh, severely paralyzed patients. I imagine he's come I've, up in your work before. Yes, I've read about him uh, with, uh, with uh, uh, mind-computer interfaces. Yeah. So he's a, he's a great guy to hear talk about sort of the <laughs> limits of the human mind. Sorry, more accurately, I should say brain-computer interface. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, m- with mind, you get into different territory. Yeah, and in this discussion, uh, Nicolaelis is definitely taking more the, the brain approach, and uh, and uh, Weaseltier is more of the, the mind spokesman, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, Nicolaelis brings up the, this idea that, that art was once very precise. So you go, you're going through the Met or any art museum, you're looking at the older pieces and what, not the real really old pieces, but, um, you know, so certainly Renaissance uh, work. You're it's seeing, all representative. Yeah, you're seeing very almost photographic paintings of what people look like. Uh, people, the artists are trying to create an image of the world as everyone else sees it, mm-hmm. a universal truth, right? But then we reach this point when artists uh, want to paint their own experiences of something rather than the universal experience of the thing. Um, so... Uh, you get into these uh, areas such as, uh, um, uh, oh, well, one, one specific example that, that was brought up was uh, William Turner's uh, 1831 steamboat painting. I see you have a picture of this in here. I do. Yeah, and it's it it's, looks kind of like a bunch of hair going down a drain. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, 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 you could say that it's definitely kind of brownish, blackish, bluish swirls with an uh, illumination in the middle. And knowing that it's about a steamboat, you can look at it and you can see a steamboat, but it is not a, a it has no photographic clarity to it. In fact, right. it's uh, in fact it utilizes what is often referred to in in art as non finite, uh, something that is intentionally unfinished, mm-hmm. um, and and sometimes that's like an obvious state of unfinished, like portions of a, of a canvas are are not filled in. But other times it's about the detail, like stuff is left vague, stuff is left without that level of photographic detail because it's more about the. Um, the subjective experience of the thing as opposed to an objective truth. Yeah. Uh, I like this Miguel, uh, Miguel Nicolelis quote you have in here where he says, all art is a collision of sight and conception of reality. Yeah. You could also say it in the same way that all vision is a collision of external and internal. I mean, vision is, is part photons, but also part psychology. Exactly. Yeah. So this puts an interesting spin on on uh, the the idea of incompleteness and completeness in what we experience, uh, as Wieseltier um, brought up as well, there's there's no perfect objectivity here. There's no view from nowhere. It's all an amalgam of what comes from inside, what comes from outside. Uh, and in this, we kind of get into. It reminds me a lot of Plato's theory of forms, right? Oh, yeah. That you have these. There's an ideal version of something. Say, uh, you know, a, a, a a sculpture of a woman or a, or a, uh, or a chair mm-hmm. or a, you know, a governmental system, whatever it, your, your dream happens to be. Uh-huh. There's an ideal form that exists outside of our reality and all we can do is quest after it. Right. But we can never quite achieve it. Right. All the stuff we've encountered are, uh, I- imperfect strivings toward that ideal. Right. And if so, if everything is imperfect, um, if everything falls short of the, the ideal from the realm of forms, then does it matter at wh- where we stop? It's almost like 
if, if, if whatever you do is going to be incomplete, like <laughs> it, it's better to try and figure well, where is the artful level of incompleteness, you know? Yeah. Like man, sometimes it's better to be, uh, to keep things vague, right? Than to, uh, to absolutely list everything that you know and therefore list the things that you don't, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, but I could also see how that same embracing of incompleteness could in the wrong ecology of the mind lead to a sort of nihilism where, well, what does it matter finishing anything? What does it matter attaining goals? That's true. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing. And of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. Oracle.com slash strategic. Dad deserves something really nice for Father's Day. But let's face it, we usually don't do it. Big gifts are for Mother's Day. Picking something up on the way is for Father's Day. Well, let's make Father's Day something this year with the Bartesian Cocktail Maker. It whips up over 60 premium cocktails on demand, each ready at the push of a button. And right now, you get $50 off the Bartesian Cocktail Maker when you buy one pack of Dad's favorite cocktail capsules. Dad will publicly love that you saved 50 on the countertop machine that crafts premium cocktails on demand. And he'll secretly love that you splurged on him for Father's Day with the gift of a Bartesian. Because the only thing that lets Dad know he's the world's number one dad better than a world's number one dad coffee mug is an artisan cocktail in his hand. Make dad's Father's Day and Father's Day cocktails with all natural juices and bitters without making any mess at all. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N dot com backslash father to get $50 off the best premium cocktail maker for dad at the best price for you. Bartesian. Premium cocktails on demand. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Your new home journey starts at Fisher Homes, where everything is red, white, and new. Explore exclusive summer savings and start your journey by selecting your ideal home site and your dream community. Choose from a variety of experts designed floor plans and bring your style to life at the Lifestyle Design Center. Are you looking for a quick move-in ready home instead? Fisher Homes has options for those too. Fill out a form to connect with a new home advisor at fisherhomes.com to get started today before the sun sets on summer savings. Now, from a uh, neuroscientific point, uh, Nicolaelis, uh, he went on to point out that the, the brain in all of this is not a passive decoder, of course. Obviously. Yeah, that, that is an obsolete view. The brain is a, quote, self-adapting complex system. And this is all built atop physics, of course. Uh, but, but he pointed out that, you know, he, he connects brains to machines for a living. That's, the, that, that's pretty much his exact quote on that. Uh-huh. Uh, and there's a, there's a tendency to discredit the unique aspects of human consciousness in all of this. So if you try and work with the brain as if it's a digital computer, it doesn't work. Right. What you have here is a probabilistic Turing machine, a hypercomputer that's an order above digital computers or normal Turing machine. Oh, that relates to some, uh, to something we talked about in our P versus NP episode with probabilistic machines versus oh, deterministic yeah. machines. Uh, all all of our computers today are deterministic machines. Yeah, and so as, as such, any experience of beauty, it all depends on experience. Uh, as uh, as Nicolaus points out, a functional brain involves exchanges at various levels. So there's no truth. There's only this just this best approximation of the truth that our minds can make. So even our our mind states are ever changing, ever evolving, and of course ever incomplete. And therefore, it makes perfect sense that that incompleteness is sometimes part of the design, as in these incomplete works of art. Well, let's take a look at some of these incomplete works of art. So there are obviously a lot of different reasons that you could have a work of art that isn't finished. I mean, we're, we're talking here about 
the, this non-finite uh, technique where it's intentionally sort of mm-hmm. left unfinished in order to convey something. But there's a lot of accidental unfinishedness, too, right? Yeah, and some of these are pretty obvious. Like, the, like you can easily imagine, oh, well, this work was incomplete at the time of the artist's death. And that happens a lot. Yeah. They just don't get around to finishing it, and it never gets done. Um, but then other times, it's they abandon it. It was just kind of a, a sketch to begin with, Yeah, maybe. Uh, they never intended to finish it. Other times, especially with uh, with, with, with portraits, uh, there's a financial disagreement with a patron. There's a political disagreement, personal issues. Yeah. Disagreement about that mole on my lip. Yeah, <laughs> or uh, you know, or, or illness or death ends up taking the, um, the the patron or at least the subject of the painting out of the picture and just can't picture it, to right. finish it. Um, and it was one of the interesting things in the, the exhibit too is just how often you saw patron problems with um, with artists that would go on to just be to you know complete famous names like you wouldn't think of this individual ever having a situation where their painting is rejected like two or three times by the patron yeah uh but uh but it occurred i believe that in in particular there was one by gustav klimt uh-huh and uh and you just you don't think about someone saying oh i don't know gustav this this doesn't look great can you take another another crack at it and all, then get back to me all of our listeners out there you who are graphic designers <laughs> and have this frustrating experience over and over that's not what i want yeah take comfort in this yeah, you're in the company of Klimt. Yeah, no matter how how skilled you are during your life, you're going to be uh, you're going to have your your work returned uh, multiple times. It's only after you you've died that everyone will take every little scrap of paper that you did a doodle on and start selling it. Now, one of the uh, examples you included here in our outline for for this is really interesting. I was not familiar with this painting, but I think it is gorgeous and awesome. I love it. Yeah, explain this, what this is, Robert. Okay, so the the painting in question is the Puni- punishment of Marseilles, also known as the flaying of uh, Marseilles by Italian late Renaissance uh, artist Titian. And I, I had seen this one before because it's grisly, and yeah. uh, that tends to be my main entry point into classical works of art, as if they're violent and weird. And this one has like a number of uh, of uh, fawns and satyrs standing yeah. around, and so, there's somebody being, there's in, they're inverted, and they're being yeah. flayed alive. So Marsyas is actually a satyr, right? He's yep. supposed to be like a, a fawn kind of creature mm-hmm. who uh, who gets into a, he has he has beef with Apollo, right? He, yeah. Uh, the, they, for some reason, have a contest of playing music, I believe. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and Apollo wins, and uh, and whichever whichever contestant wins gets to do whatever he wants to to the other one. And I guess what Apollo wants to do to this poor satyr <laughs> is flay him alive. It's um, you know, it, it, you see this a lot in in Greek mythology, right? You have an individual who challenges a god to or accept a god accepts a god's challenge mm-hmm. to some sort of a, a competition, or they just end up in a in some sort of a spat. With a deity, right. always a bad move. Devil went down to Georgia. Yeah, like devil went down to Georgia is like, like that. Actually, ends up okay. Yeah, but if that if the devil went down to Georgia was a was an, an ancient Greek myth, he would have you know wound John up would fiddle get or something. Yeah, yeah. And, the, the devil would play <laughs> him with a fiddle. Right. That was it. Was that was the that was how their cosmology worked. So this particular painting is one of several that uh, Titian uh, produced later in life that displays horrific scenes of murder or misery. Um, and he cre- recreated all of these with uh, intentional imperfect detail. Mm-hmm. So I g- guess the idea here is that the mind can't quite take it all in because it's just so grisly, just so depressing, just so mind-rendingly awful that things kind of blur out. Yeah, I think it accomplishes that well. Now, there are obviously different ways that paintings can have an unfinished style, and I think this one is considered unfinished just in the level of sort of resolution of detail. Right. It's blurry. It's not like there's a missing corner or something, but there's stuff like that, too. Yeah, yeah. And and another key example, and one of my favorites uh, from the piece, because it definitely gets into some discussions here we can have about uh, literature and film and other uh, media, but it, it involves another work by Titian. Uh, and what we have here is an unfinished portrait of an unknown lady and her daughter, probably members of Titian's family. Uh, but it was it was left uncomplete, incomplete at the time of his death. Uh-huh. So <laughs> what happened? Well, uh, this particular painting was setting around, and then... Um, Somebody came along and decided to finish it for him. Somebody who maybe wasn't as good an artist as Titian. Yeah, definitely not as good at good. But you can 
I'm I, I'm probably thinking of it, in, you know, as a you know somebody else working in a studio and underling came along and says, oh well, look, this is almost completed, um, but I feel pretty talented. I'm going to take this, complete it, and then I can sell it. Right? Then it's going to be a value. Right. And so. The painting was altered in the studio to depict uh, Tobias and the Archangel Raphael. Um, <laughs> so it, it you goes look up pictures of this. Yeah, the original one is kind of striking. The uh, the the redone one, what could you? Say? It looks insipid. Yeah, it it clearly even to untrained, you know, mostly untrained eyes uh, such as my own, you can tell that there's a big dip in quality. It goes from you know looking like an unfinished masterpiece to uh, yeah, just Precious another painting. Moments. Yeah, just another painting of an angel and a boy uh, just standing there. Uh, so it wasn't until the second half of the 20th century uh, that they were able to restore, and this is kind of this is kind of crazy, restore the completed work to its original. Incomplete status, mm-hmm. um, which is which is lovely because what does this say about our de- first of all about our desire to complete works, but then about our feelings regarding a completed work, especially if it's completed by someone other than the artist. Well, I feel like this is very different between an artist who is still living and an artist who has been dead for a while. Because once an artist has been dead for a while and becomes part of art history, I think maybe that there is a different motivation in interacting with each of their works. It's less to experience a single completed work, but to get a complete and true view of the artist's career, in yeah. which case the unfinished work that's a true reflection of the artist is more a part of this completeness paradigm we want than a a truly finished portrait that doesn't look like that artist's style. Yeah, because in many cases, an incomplete painting, it, it gives us insight into their technique, uh, how they went about creating these uh, particular paintings. Like, what did they complete first? Yeah. What were the, did they do the background? Did they do the foreground? Did they do some sort of uh, you know scaffolding uh, blueprint underneath it? You know, it's, it's all tremendously interesting uh, when you're trying to, to figure out who this artist was and how they conducted their craft. Yeah, uh, but, but tying into what I just said, I mean, that sort of lets us know that there are different levels of completeness we seek. Do mm-hmm. you want completeness at the individual uh, works? scale or do you want completeness at the artist's biography scale right. or do you want completeness from a historical periods understanding scale you know do you want to see this as part of the italian renaissance type yeah, I, I don't know what all the eras of paintings are but mm-hmm. uh you, you see what i mean yeah well like a, a literary example that i can't help but come to uh is that of uh frank herbert's dune saga oh boy uh which we discussed a little bit i was bit hoping our, we'd talk dune about episodes. dune today <laughs> So this uh, the the Dune saga was of course left incomplete uh, at the time of Frank Herbert's death. Now, how many books did Herbert himself write? Oh, what is it, five or six? Uh, I don't have the list in front of me, and I they they begin to kind of bleed together for me towards the end. Uh-huh. But uh, he he wrote several, uh, but then. Yeah, the saga itself was left incomplete. He had notes. And then his son, Brian Herbert, and co-author Kevin J. Anderson, they picked up the work uh, years after his death and finished the saga based on his notes and, of course, wrote a ton of other Dune notes. I mean, at this point, Brian Herbert has written, uh, Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson have written more Dune books than than Frank Herbert ever wrote, huh. um, which is which is interesting. But it's also one of these areas that's very dis- divisive because you have Dune fans that you know refer to themselves as Orthodox Dune fans. They're only going to read the the Frank books, only the Prophet himself, right? But then you have uh, but then you have plenty of fans who embrace the uh, Brian Herbert Kevin J Anderson books and this expanded view of the universe. But but yeah, at the at at the at the heart of it, like. The complete saga is not a Frank Herbert creation. It's a Frank Herbert, Brian Herbert, Kevin J. Anderson creation. Like it becomes a, a different thing, right? Uh-huh. By by completing it, they have sort of transformed it into something else. But also, is a franchise ever completed? That's true. I yeah. mean, I think of our age of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. What if uh, George Lucas were to have gotten to a point where he said, "Okay." Uh, maybe imagine an alternate universe. George Lucas makes nine Star Wars movies or whatever, okay. and then he says, "Okay, we're done." <laughs> um, I would the fans be okay with that, or would they keep wanting more Star Wars stuff? 
Well, I mean, it seems to me that now that we're in Disney's hands, there is going to be Star Wars until the end of time. Right. There will never not be new Star Wars stuff. Yeah, but but yeah, what what would have happened if he was if he just did the three movies and said I'm done? Yeah. Or what if or what if something had happened, and he didn't get something past Empire Strikes Back? Like, what if Empire Strikes Back had been a bomb? Just nobody nobody loved it at the time, and we only grew to love it, say, in recent years. We said, hey, this is a masterpiece. Uh-huh. Well, I wonder what the next installment would have been like. What would have happened if we had actually followed uh, Luke through and, and you know actually figured out what kind of uh, comeback the uh, the rebels were going to have? Lucas's son would write it. And then, uh... <laughs> uh, well, why it often does seem like it's a hereditary enterprise. Didn't the same thing happen with Tolkien after Tolkien's death? Didn't his son take over? Well, I, that's an interesting example to bring up, and I. You know, I don't, I don't know a lot about that because my Tolkien experience is basically, um, basically revolves around just the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. But I understand that a lot of, um, of, uh, his, uh, of, of the, the subsequent work has been sort of a mix of, like it's been a little bit literary. It's kind of like commentating on mm-hmm. it. Well, uh, yeah, I think he's edited together. He like, yeah. took some of his father's notes and edited them into books or something. Yeah, but then there was that. Uh, there was like a complete saga that came out, and I, I never read it. But it was the Children of Huron or something? So that <laughs> I uh, have no idea. Yeah. But certainly that you could see that as a as a as a as an example of this. Though it would have been more, I think, clearly an example if say. He, you know, he had not actually finished the Lord of the Rings, and someone had to come along and finish it. And we we do find other examples of fantasy sagas uh, uh, ending up incomplete. Uh, Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time series, for example, uh, was actually completed by Brandon Sanderson, uh, and this was by the deceased author's design. Like he picked the individual to finish these books, and. Um, I have not read them, uh, but I was reading about them. I was actually talking to our uh, coworker uh, Tyler, who has read them, and uh, it seems like most of the reactions to this are far more positive. There's less uh, a schism among the uh, the Wheel of Time fans. Yeah, um, most people say that the new author style, you know, shines through, and some applaud his increase his increased uh, pace, his willingness to tie up loose ends, which of course is important when you're trying to finish a saga. Right. Uh, and some point out that maybe he didn't have the the knack for descriptions and detail that Jordan had, but for the most part, it seems like everyone embraced this completion of the incomplete work. Well, I know what all of you are yelling at your ear earbuds right now. <laughs> Germ, right? Oh, yeah. It's Game all about Germ. Yeah, what's going to happen with uh, with Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire, George R. R. Martin's currently incomplete uh, series of novels, and the slightly more complete HBO series uh-huh. based on those novels. Yeah, so the show, the TV show, you probably already know this, but the TV show Game of Thrones is actually outpaced uh, Martin's novels. It's mm-hmm. ahead of the novels that it's based on. He has not released the one that he was planning on releasing that would contain some of the same stuff as the current season of the show. Yeah, Winds of Winter, I believe. Yeah, and so uh, so how old is George R. R. Martin? Uh, he is 67 years old. And it's um, taken about 10,000 yeah. years to write each book, so uh, people have, I mean, not to be, I, I wish him great health and long life, but uh, people do speculate, like, what if he dies before he finishes writing these books? Yeah. And everybody wants to know the end. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the the reverse is also true. I feel with any book or film series. What if I die before right. I get to complete watching or reading this thing? You know, uh-huh. I mean, so, so it's it's coming from that place of us craving completeness in our works. But yeah, if he if he dies before completing the books, uh, will fans uh, you know embrace whoever the the chosen writer is to to finish it? Uh, how will we feel about the, the 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 HBO series as it completes the saga before the books? What if what if the what if the uh, the, the book series remains incomplete? Um, you know, for the foreseeable future. What if uh, artificial intelligence has to finish it later <laughs> on, you know? Oh, it won't do a very good job, will it? Uh, well, I mean, who knows? Maybe. Maybe as long as it can make good, solid descriptions of Westeros food while, uh, you know, laying out a bunch of political details, I think it can do a good job. Uh-huh. I, I am firmly of the opinion that any artificial intelligence good enough to write an entertaining and compelling work of fiction will eradicate the human species. <laughs> now, um, 
this being said, you know, there are plenty of examples of incomplete works out there. And, and most of them, it seems like we're pretty okay with them. We're probably getting more into that uh, territory of an incomplete work by a master who's been dead for a while. But uh, some of the works that come to mind, uh, 120 Days of Sodom uh, by the Marquis de Sade, uh, Billy Budd, The Mysterious Stranger, uh, The Pale King by David Foster Wallace. Mm-hmm. Um and the mysterious stranger, of course, being um, Mark Twain's uh, story, and I believe there are like three different drafts. Um, all of them are kind of incomplete, and you can sort of cobble together a finished product from that. But it's still ultimately incomplete. You know, Charles Dickens' The Mystery of Edwin Drood—that's an unfinished work of fiction. Uh, oh yeah. That uh, and it, it, crazy that it's unfinished because it's a mystery. Oh, so so nobody knows how how it ends. You don't know the solution to the mystery. Well, in the musical version of The Mystery <laughs> of Edwin Drood, it actually allows the audience to select the ending, so the audience gets to vote on who the who the murderer turns out to be. Huh. And then what about music? Are there musical, uh, is there a musical uh, equivalent to an, an either an incomplete or intentionally incomplete work? Well, yeah, I think there are. I mean, I, I, I'm a big fan of the, uh, going back to my 90s catalog, the album B-1000 by Guided by Voices. Mm-hmm. A lot of the early Guided by Voices songs, uh, they sound like half of a song. Like, so the song will come on and it plays one verse and one chorus and that was about, you know, 75 seconds long and then it moves on to the next song and it never comes back. Huh. That's just it. That's okay. all there is. And it, the, this was published during the artist's lifetime. Oh, right? yeah. I mean, so it's, it's not a matter of them, of someone coming just, along and saying, Oh, here's some recordings that are unfinished, uh-huh. but let's make a few bucks off of it. It's just what the song is. Huh. Okay. So that would, that would, Seem to be more of an intentionally incomplete uh, mode of creation, then. Yeah, sort but of it, like the sketch as art. I think that it creates a good effect. I mean, one reason I think I love that album is that no song gets tiresome. None, none of them yeah. last long enough to, for you to like really say, "Okay, I've heard the chorus four times now." Mm-hmm. It, it just doesn't happen, huh. and so every time a song's over, you kind of wish it was still going on. Interesting, yeah, and I'm sure that uh, our listeners out there will come up with uh, numerous examples of unfinished uh, art, fiction, music, etc., to share with us. Uh, We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to get into the psychology of this. Why our brains, why why our minds crave that complete work? Father's Day is coming, a day we celebrate the guy who's always there for us. To crack a dad joke. Well, you know what's not a dad joke? Getting $50 off the Bartesian Premium Cocktail Maker with the purchase of his favorite cocktail capsule pack. $50 off. No dad joke. See, this is a dad joke. I lost my glasses today, and guess who I bumped into? Everyone. But the Bartesian Cocktail Maker? It's no joke. Each cocktail capsule contains real fruit juices and all-natural bitters, so Dad can make over 60 premium cocktails he loves. Sidecars, old fashions, gimlets, all with the push of a button. So, for the dad who loves a cocktail with friends and a good joke from time to time, get the Bartesian Premium Cocktail Maker. $50 off now until Father's Day. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash father to get 50 off the best premium cocktail maker for dad at the best price for you. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Your new home journey starts at Fisher Homes, where everything is red, white, and new. Explore exclusive summer savings and start your journey by selecting your ideal home site and your dream community. Choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans and bring your style to life at the Lifestyle Design Center. Are you looking for a quick move-in ready home instead? Fisher Homes has options for those too. Fill out a form to connect with a new home advisor at fisherhomes.com to get started today before the sun sets on summer savings. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have supervision, enhanced hearing, extraordinary reflexes, to be, dare we say, superhuman? Well, Roku's new Pro Series TV can't do any of that for you. But with a 4K screen, side-firing speakers, and a blazing fast refresh rate, it'll sure feel like it. Elevate your entertainment using all your favorite apps like iHeart and play all your music, radio, and podcasts with the new Roku Pro Series. Your senses aren't better. Your TV is. 
All right, we're back. So, Robert, it, wh- why do we crave completion and closure? Why do we have to see the end of a thing? Well, that's the big question, right? I mean, because as we've discussed, our lives are these unfinished stories, but then we read these finished stories, and then we sort of think about our own lives in terms of a story, and we imagine ourselves as the the, the central character in this story. Mm-hmm. Um, one, uh, one description that I think uh, helps shine a little light on it is that from a cognitive point of view, we're all, quote, information-seeking, prediction-loving, cognitive systems. So this gets into the whole idea that we're trying to survive in this world, and in order to do so, we want to understand our our situation. Right. We want to know what came before, we need to know what comes after. So this particular quote comes from Flora Lichtman, uh, co-author of Annoying, The Science of What Bugs Us. <laughs> and, uh, and this is a book that, that deals with a number of just, you know, all the various pet peeves and what sort of the, the psychological or scientific underpinnings uh-huh. for them happens to be. But uh, one thing that she particularly brings up is that overhearing another person's phone call is inherently engaging and mindlessly irritating because we're tuning into an incomplete conversation. Oh, yeah. We can only hear part of it, and then we have to just maddeningly guess at what the rest of it consists of. Indeed, like what the point of the entire call uh, happened to be to begin with. Yeah, so that's crazy because I, I would tend to think that because of that incompleteness, hearing half of a phone call is way more distracting than hearing a complete complete conversation going on in the room with you, with both parties. And I wonder if that's borne out. Well, indeed, yeah. There's a, a Cornell University study that actually looked into this idea. Uh, and they, they conducted it by taking a, a conversation, garbling half the words so that the uh, the subjects only heard half of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And they found that overhearing half a conversation, a half a log as they referred to it, uh, is more distracting than other kinds of conversations because we're missing that other side of the story. And we can't predict the flow of the conversation. Because if you overhear somebody just, you know, a couple people talking about a TV show, you don't watch, say. You you can very quickly realize, oh, they're just talking about this episode of the show. I know exactly what they're talking about it and I, about, and I don't care. Yeah, I can I can see exactly how this is going to play out. But what if you just hear, oh yeah, yeah, he he dies in that episode. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, well, what, ep- what, what episode? Sh- what yeah. show? Did I? Is it a show I watched? Did they just spoil me? Uh-huh. Do, do I dare listen more? Because what if it's a show I haven't watched yet? Right. Uh, and then you just start screaming, no spoilers, no spoilers, uh, like a madman. <laughs> but yeah, so our, on a very basic level, our brains require complete information because, you know, it, at risk of getting into uh, um, imperfect uh, comparisons to a computer. Our brains are that hypercomputer that that needs data input in order to choose its next move. And if we're getting incomplete data in there, it just starts going a little haywire, right? Yeah. Uh, So another psychology concept that I think might be relevant to our our relationship with incompleteness and unfinished things is something we've actually talked about a little bit on the show before, the Zygarnik effect, which we we mentioned it briefly in our two-part episode about the science of Tetris. Ah, yes. And it played into that because we were, uh, I think, picking up on, somebody else had made this point, and we were were sort of repeating the idea that... um, Tetris has something to do with the Zygarnik effect. Now, the Zygarnik effect, uh, it's a phenomenon that was identified by the Russian psychologist Bluma V. Zygarnik. Uh, she lived uh, 1900 to 1988. And it posits that we tend to have better recall for unfinished tasks than we do for finished ones. Uh, and so, the, of course, that would figure into Tetris because Tetris is never finished. There's no end of the game. It is a perpetually unfinished job. You just play to till extinction, basically. Right. Yeah. Playing to. <laughs> so, yeah, what do Tetris and gambling have in common? <laughs> There's only one way for it to be over, and it's when you cannot continue. Yeah, when you have lost. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so a standard evaluation of the Zygarnik effect would go something like this. You get test subjects and you ask them to complete a number of mental and or physical jobs. For example, solving jigsaw puzzles or mm-hmm. stringing beads. So if they're solving jigsaw puzzles, there might be details on the jigsaw puzzle that they're solving. Maybe it's a picture of a bunch of dinosaurs riding on jet skis or, you know, whatever it is. And in half of the tasks, the subject will be allowed to finish. And in the other half, the subject will be interrupted and asked to move on to another task before the one they're currently working on is completed. 
And then they get asked to remember details about both types of jobs. Mm -hmm. And you can express this differential recall as an IC ratio, the number of details remembered about incomplete tasks versus the number of details remembered about completed tasks. And Zygarnik herself found this ratio to be more than 1.0. People had a better memory for incomplete and unfinished things. But why? Uh, so a number of different interpretations have been offered throughout the years that, you know, people have said that, uh, ambition plays a role in the extent to which people have differential recall here. Uh, people posited, well, maybe interruption by the experimenter causes a feeling of irritation that heightens the emotion and that heightened emotion causes greater recall. Who, who knows exactly what it is? There are a lot of interpretations. But there have been many subsequent evaluations of this effect throughout the years, which have uh, sort of complicated the picture, because we don't always remember incompleted tasks better. So according to the Dictionary of Theories, Laws, and Concepts in Psychology by John A. Rockaline, uh, studies have indicated that the Zygarnik effect is less likely to take place if the subject is, quote, ego involved in the task and more likely to take place if the subject thinks the task is ultimately possible of uh, possible to achieve uh, or possible to finish and uh, Hilgard in 1966 found that the IC memory differential is short term like it lasts for only a period of less than 24 hours and apparently it also doesn't work for all types of tasks now, there's one study I looked at from 1991 by uh, uh, Seifert and Padalano called Memory for Incomplete Tasks, a Reexamination of the Zygarnik Effect. And so essentially that said that Zygarnik's original findings have been both replicated and not replicated by subsequent studies. So that, that seems to suggest there's a sort of complex effect going on. The different variables are interacting with it in different ways. Uh, and the results have been explained a lot of times in terms of social psychological variables. But Seifert and uh, Padalano attempted to replicate these effects, adjusting variables uh, affecting cognitive problem solving, like the nature of the interruption. What happens when somebody comes in and interrupts you or the time spent during processing the job and the set size of the, of the number of tasks? Uh, so in the first experiment they did, they found that in solving word problems, interruption after a short interval of active problem solving actually uh, led to better memory for completed tasks than uncompleted ones. Actually, the opposite of Zygarnik if you don't spend much time on the tasks. Okay. But this kind of makes sense, right? Uh, intuitively, that sounds right to me. If I'm not spending much time on a problem, I'd remember the problem better if I finished it. Right. Uh, and and they sort of acknowledge that. that. That seems kind of obvious, but all right. And the second experiment replicates Zygarnik. Uh, they found that uh, if you allow subjects to take as long as they need and then abandon problems they're unable to solve, it does hold that they have a better memory for the ones that they weren't able to complete. Uh, thus, here's a piece of evidence that our recall is better for things, uh, for unfinished tasks that we gave up on than for unfinished tasks we were sort of ripped away from by circumstances. So I'd say the Zargarnik effect presents a complicated picture. It depends on the subject. It depends on the type of task. But another difference is that it applies to tasks hmm. and uh, like problems to be solved or jobs to be completed. And I wonder if our relationship with art, fiction, music, etc., and the way we've been talking about is like this when we're the audience. And thus, does the Zygarnik effect in any way uh, have any sway over our participation with works of art? Yeah, I... I can't help but but think that it does because um, on one hand I'm thinking about the experience of reading a book. Uh, so if you're just like a couple of pages into a book and you set it down, yeah, like generally it's pretty easy to not pick that book up again to just leave it on the table or on the shelf. Right. But if you've read a half or you know or even uh, you know a good two thirds of the book, there's often that just maddening. Uh, compulsion to complete it, even if you're not digging it anymore. It's like I've put so much time into it, yeah. I've got to finish it. Or I've encountered that with TV shows before. TV shows that you know go multiple seasons, and I'm not going to name any uh, in particular, but uh, but they go multiple seasons, and then you really are losing interest. But there are the remaining mysteries. There's you've got to know if they make it to their their destination, and you keep watching just out of the. The, the need to finish it. Yeah, I I can totally agree. I mean, I think uh, 
I'll call out one TV show. Okay. Lost put its hooks in me this way. I, I, this is a controversial position. A lot of people who like the show will probably want to tear my head off, but I don't think Lost was actually all that great of a show. Okay. You know, I, I think that it had a lot of storytelling problems, uh, and some of its characterization was kind of shallow and, and obvious looking back on it. But, it had its hooks in me. I couldn't stop. I had to keep going to see the mm-hmm. completion of this narrative because they had set up tons of unfinished problems in it. The show was just a litany of uh, of setting up a problem that was not resolved. And and you'd continue thinking that it would be resolved. I'll leave that up to you to if you ever want to watch the show to find out if these things are resolved or not. But I will just say that personally, I... I found myself very frustrated in the end. Huh. You know, it's interesting to think of this in terms of TV because the, the, the classic TV model, right, uh-huh. is very cyclical. It, uh, a classic sitcom formula involves a complete reset at the end of each episode. So there's there's no yeah. zygarnic reason to come back and watch it the next week, yeah. except that you're going to get the more or less the same experience. Everything's going to reset to the same place, and there's virtually no overarching narrative that you need to concern yourself with. Yeah, though I think we should also be aware of the possibility that we are just misapplying this concept and that it really has to do more with jobs you're working on than mm-hmm. than participation with narratives. But I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'd be interested to hear from you psychologists out there. Yeah. Like, do you, do you think the Zygarnik effect in any way, to whatever extent it does hold true for humans, applies to our participation with works of art and, and external narratives? Indeed. Now... At the same time, it's interesting as we're discussing all this, is we're taking in incomplete stories, complete stories, cyclical and linear stories. Um, the brain is writing tons of incomplete stories itself. Of course. Uh, according to philosopher, cognitive scientist Daniel Dennett, uh, the human brain as a com- computational device is constantly processing all sorts of information at different rates and in different locations. And this produces uh, what he re- refers to as multiple incomplete narrative drafts. Yeah. And these are all just continually synthesized into a coherent but highly unstable narrative at equilibrium. And it's within this unstable narrative that we devote our sense of uh, of I. We uh, we develop our sense of I and self. Yeah, I I really love uh, Daniel Dennett's analogies mm-hmm. for cognitive uh, cognitive philosophy and philosophy of mind. Uh, I feel like they are often very helpful. Yeah. It's 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 interesting to, to 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 look at this argument, and especially after just talking about TV, uh-huh. to think of our basic experience of ourself and and our immediate reality is like a flimsy TV narrative that's cobbled together from a number of bad scripts. Yeah, that that all land on the uh, the showrunner's desk, and they're like, all right, a little of this one, a little of that one. Uh, let's run with this script, Joe. And then, and then everyone's saying, well, this doesn't really make sense. There's some big story problems here. Well, who is this main character? Uh, it seems that on one hand, he thinks he's uh, some sort of a hero, but then he's this and as well. And just run with it. Just let's film it and call it a day. Uh-huh. And that's kind of what we do. But it's sort of like a script for a lost episode, isn't it? Because it's got tons of, it's got a polar bear there, and you're like, surely I'm going to find out where this thing came from. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, at the end, it is still this continual journey. Um, and, uh, and I mean, maybe that's part of it too. We, we like our stories, we like our fiction the most when it is in the journey phase, when it's incomplete. Yeah. Uh, but has the promise of completion. Well, how many examples can you think of where, uh, where there's a narrative that's as much fun once you finished it as it was to be in the middle of it. It's a rarity. I mean, that's yeah. the, the work. That's the the mark of a a really great work of fiction, right? Is that you know all the twists and turns, but you just want to experience it again because you want to experience that world. You want to experience those characters. Yeah. Um, because there are plenty of lesser works, uh, I guess you could say, and certainly that's uh, that's very subjective, but. There are lesser works of fiction out there that once you've once you've taken the journey, once you've ridden the ride, you know the twists and turns. You have no desire to ride it again because it's just going to feel kind of flimsy afterwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, though sometimes that first ride is amazing, <laughs> but it's just impossible to uh, to experience it again quite the same way. I'm thinking particularly of 
of films uh, and works where you end up with a very unreliable uh, narrator. You have sort of, sort of like a, without getting into spoilers, like a memento uh, experience or a fight club experience mm-hmm. or um, uh, what was the uh, the switch uh, switchblade romance uh, horror film that came out years ago the French one high tension yes high tension um, great film the first viewing uh, that's all I'll say oh okay yeah but that great that first viewing was uh, was tremendous so uh, yeah great film in my opinion just not the kind of ride you want to do over and over again uh huh. But back to incompleteness, completeness. We, we crave a linear story, and we have a tendency to uh, chafe at anything that doesn't give us that. The, the offending work might be a nonlinear book or nonlinear film. It might be uh, an intentionally incomplete or in- unfinished work. Uh, University of California Santa Barbara professor H. Porter Abbott calls the preference for linear storytelling a fundamental operating procedure of the mind. Uh-huh. So... Essentially, it breaks down like this. At three years of age, our brains begin to compartmentalize sensory information from the world around us into an ongoing narrative, uh, which each of us uh, then places ourselves at the center. It's that, uh, the kind of story, that the same thing that Daniel Dennett uh, was discussing earlier. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's, a, there's an interesting pa- paper that looks at this. 2015 Yeshiva University paper, The Power of, and of the Picture, How Narrative Film Captures Attention and Disrupts Goal Pursuit. And this was uh, published in uh, PLOS 1. So in this particular experiment, participants were uh, they viewed either an intact version of an engaging 20-minute film, Bang Your Dead, 1961, by Alfred Hitchcock, or a version of the same film with the scenes presented out of order. Okay. And so they called this the contiguous condition versus the non-contiguous condition. Right. Non-contiguous yeah. meaning out of order. Exactly. Yeah. I don't I don't think both are available on the DVD release, but maybe the Blu-ray, right? <laughs> So that they were in this experiment, they weren't told that this was about you know narratives and our experience. They were told that this was about gun violence in films, and that they had to raise their hands anytime someone said "gun" in the film. So those who view the linear film, they were far less likely to follow these orders because they were essentially just ensorcelled by the fiction. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, so the, these results illustrate. Uh, the idea that uh, that we have an innate preference for linear narrative, uh, though there is, of course, a you know an artful balance to maintain there, because we can all think of nonlinear narratives that work to varying degrees, sometimes right. exceptionally well. And of course, I, I think the the very fact of linear narrative that's so compelling is that it promises a conclusion. Right. That's exactly the thing that makes it seem linear. Yeah, you want to see the the hero. Win. You yeah. want to see the villain get their comeuppance. Yeah. You want the, to, the line segment is the shortest distance between two points. If you don't have a second point, you're in trouble. Right. <laughs> now, all of this being said, uh, we have visual works of art that have uh, movement and story to them. And yet we also have works that represent decisive segments of an incomplete linear narrative. And the viewer has to sort of has to fill them out with uh, his or her own mind, uh, deciding how we came to this place and where we go from there. Mm-hmm. Um, like one example that comes to mind here, and this is not something that I saw at the Met, um, is um, uh, Ilya Repin's haunting uh, 1885 masterpiece, Ivan the Terrible and His Son Ivan. You've seen this one before, right? I don't know if I have seen it before. Maybe I have, but I'm looking at it now, and wow. Yeah, it's uh, it that is some pathos in a painting. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's Ivan the Terrible having brained his son with uh, uh, I believe a, a hammer or a scepter. I can't remember the the exact because it's based on a historical occurrence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's just staring up. He's cradling his bleeding adult son and uh, just staring with these haunted eyes into the middle distance. So. We, we know that it depicts a, an historical occurrence. We, we know that this depicts the 1581 murder of, of Ivan's own son. And we know how to fit it within a rough linear narrative. But it's not like we have a sequence of paintings filling out the rest of the narrative. We have this one potent, potent segment, and it forces us to envision everything else. And we see that in works of fiction, too, right? right. Works that capture our imagination with an incomplete glimpse of a, a wider, maybe weirder world. That's often, I think, uh, it certainly is for me, I assume it is for other people, a, a point of specific pleasure in fiction is the the sense that you are uh, getting a feeling for a much broader world or a much broader story through a kind of keyhole, yeah. a, a little narrative peephole into the world. And uh, that that feeling of there being so much more is is one of the great pleasures of fiction. 
Yeah. So I guess uh, like some of my closing questions here um, for, for this segment would be, you know, how do all of these factor into our understanding of incomplete or unfinished works? Why are some fragments uh, sort of ideal mental seeds while others are larval forms that we have to, to grow? Why are some partial works sacrosanct and why are others why are others things that just must be completed by skilled hands at all costs? Yeah. And granted, there's. You know, there, there's consumer uh, elements here. There are market forces involved, uh, as well as just personal taste. But uh, but there, yeah, there's this interesting division between the, the works that that can and should remain incomplete and those that just have to be fleshed out. We have to have the complete specimen. I think it's a fascinating question, and I don't know if we've come across the answer today. I mean, it's it's obvious that our our brains are very strongly driven by narrative. Narrative is very highly motivated by the desire for completion and closure uh, that uh, that we do tend to, via the Zygarnik effect, whether that applies truly to fiction and art. I mean, it's certainly clear that we tend to return mentally to things that are unfinished. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Well, it's an open question, and we certainly invite our listeners to uh, to uh, attend to it as well. Yeah, and if you feel compelled that there absolutely must be an ending to the story of the the three brothers in the prison, feel free to write that and send it in. All right, so there you have it. Uh, incomplete, complete works, unfinished works. Let us know what you think. Uh, as always, you can uh, seek us out at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is our homepage. That's where you'll find all the blog posts, podcasts, videos, links out to our social media accounts, such as Facebook and Twitter. And then, Joe, if they want to make direct contact with us, perhaps with an ending to your uh, story fragment from the beginning, how can they get in touch with us? Well, of course, as always, you can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Your new home journey starts at Fisher Homes, where everything is red, white, and new. Explore exclusive summer savings and start your journey by selecting your ideal home site and your dream community. Choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans and bring your style to life at the Lifestyle Design Center. Are you looking for a quick move-in ready home instead? Fisher Homes has options for those too. Fill out a form to connect with a new home advisor at fisherhomes.com to get started today before the sun sets on summer savings. What are you looking for in a new smart TV? 4K picture quality? High quality and immersive sound? A sleek design? All of those are givens, but only the new Roku Pro Series has all of those and the Roku Streaming Experience, an award-winning OS. Get fast, easy access to all your apps like iHeart, where you can stream all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts all day. And regular, all-inclusive trips to Roku City. The new Roku Pro Series, a smart TV built by the streaming pros.